Welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Today I'll be answering questions from people dealing with judgmental parents, homophobic in-laws, and neighbors who throw dog poop over the fence. Here to help me out, because clearly I'm going to need help with this, is fellow Slatester Mark Joseph Stern. He's a senior writer covering courts and the law for Slate Magazine. Based in Washington, D.C., he's covered the U.S. Supreme Court, federal appellate and district courts, and state and local courts since 2013. He is a member of the Maryland Bar, and his areas of expertise include LGBTQ equality, reproductive rights, criminal justice, and the Supreme Court jurisprudence. So for a little more personal introduction, three more things about him. He's another one who's really professional on Twitter, so I had to ask him for the three fun facts that people are typically asked to share at Slate when they're hired. So one, he has an adopted parrot named Toro. Toro is four years old and asks if he's a good boy several dozen times a day. Um, I was hoping Toro would be around, but he's upstairs right now, so we will not hear him. Two, he met Tom Hanks while he emerged from a porta potty just before Obama's first inauguration. Tom graciously took a picture with him directly in front of the porta potty. Hopefully, it's framed in there somewhere. And number three, he played a starring role in a training video for supervised visitation centers in Florida when he was five years old. Mark and I will dive into your questions after a short break. Welcome back. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Mark Joseph Stern. Hey, Mark. Hi. I'm so incredibly happy to be here answering questions with you. I'm so happy to have you um, with or without Toro. <laughs> yeah, I honestly feel like uh, when I got the call to come on Dear Prudence, it was such a, a moment of the clouds parting and the sun shining through. I've been waiting for this call for 10 years. No way. And so it's hard to overstate how delighted I am to be here. I'll try not to sound too nerdy. But I mean, obviously, if you work at Slate, like Dear Prudence becomes a part of you. And so for mm-hmm. me to be a part of it, it's just a magical moment. Oh, well, you were one of the very first people we thought of. So I actually need your help on these questions. And I can't wait to hear what you think. So with that, let's dive right into our first letter. It is called Betrayed by Blabbermouth. I am a straight autistic male who, despite being fairly conventionally attractive and having a high paying job, was a virgin until I met my girlfriend at age 31. We've been dating for almost a year and recently got engaged upon finding out that she is pregnant with our child. My parents were completely pleasant toward both of us when we told them. But a few days later, my aunt Angela, my mom's twin sister, called me up and told me that my mom had told her that she, my mom, was heartbroken that I'm marrying a woman she does not think is thin, attractive, or intelligent enough for me. According to Aunt Angela, my mom said she was afraid I was only marrying my girlfriend because she's pregnant and because I had so much trouble with dating and didn't think I could get anyone better. Aunt Angela said that my mom suspected my girlfriend of getting pregnant on purpose in order to snag me. My girlfriend, unfortunately, happened to overhear this entire call because we were driving and I had to take it on speaker. By the time I hung up, she was crying and said she didn't want to have anything to do with my parents or ever let them see the baby. I told her it probably wasn't even true that my mom seemed to like her and would never say those things. But she made me call my mom without telling her she, my girlfriend, was listening and ask if it was true. My mom admitted that yes, she had said all that, 
but she had told Aunt Angela in confidence and was extremely angry that Aunt Angela had told me. She still doesn't know my girlfriend knows. My girlfriend is determined to never forgive my mom or let her or my dad see our child. I understand how hurt she is, but I can't help feeling it's unfair to punish both my parents forever for something my mom might have secretly thought, but never intended to let on. If anything, I think she should be mad at Aunt Angela, as I am. What can I do to rebuild a good relationship between my future wife and my parents for my child's sake? So not to nitpick, but I do want to point out the mom did not, quote unquote, secretly think these things, as the letter writer claims. Um, she didn't reveal this under hypnosis, right? Right. She thought them and then she decided to tell Aunt Angela. Nobody made her do that. I love that close read. That's why you're the expert. Yeah, I mean, it's important, right? I'm not saying that's going to solve the case for us, but I just think it's an important thing to note. Right. So so with that in mind, my first reaction here is that, you know, Aunt Angela is obviously the malefactor. She should not have repeated these uh, horrible observations made in confidence. Uh, that does not excuse the, the mother for saying these things. It's absolutely atrocious. And we can dig into later how also problematic and offensive it is. You know, the, apparently the mom has some serious body image issues uh, concerning her son and also possibly herself. But I also mm -hmm. would like to, to take a step back and say maybe Aunt Angela has done a favor to the letter writer here. Hmm, because what Aunt Angela has done ha is put this simmering potential conflict out on the table really early on, before it has had time to develop, before it has had time to fester and become an open wound. And it's, it's very easy for me to imagine that none of this happens. This couple gets married, they're happy, they have a kid. And 10 years down the road, this, this opinion, this horrible opinion by the mother explodes into view at some drunken New Year's Eve or mm. overstuffed Thanksgiving. And suddenly, you know, everybody has to come to the realization that the last decade, the mom has been holding in these awful views. And it's so much harder, I think, to work backward from that point than it is to work forward from the early stage where we are now, uh, where there is really a lot of time to address this, to kind of put all of the family members in their proper orbit, and maybe mm -hmm. set things up nicely for when this child comes into the world. That's so optimistic. But really, Mark, really, you think someone can come back from this? If someone thought these horrible things about me, I would choose any day of the week to not hear them for a decade and just deal with them later. Like I want to enjoy that decade without knowing this and like not thinking about this every time I see you. Because this isn't like um, a conflict or an argument over something that can be resolved. This is just a, a horrible truth that's out there now. I think you're unattractive and uneducated and unworthy. And you can apologize for that, but you can never take those words and that truth back. So that's absolutely true. And I think that the fiance has a right to do whatever she wants with this information up to and including saying, I cannot talk to your mother indefinitely. Mm -hmm. I will not interact with your mother. This is incredibly toxic. It's bad for me. It's going to be bad for a baby. I think that she has that right undoubtedly. But I would also say if I were in the letter writer's shoes, what I think I would do 
is have a conversation with my mom where we get all of this out in the open and we move mm-hmm. on from the betrayal by Aunt Angela. You know, it's happened. It doesn't really matter how it happened. Let's talk about this. And I think the letter writer needs to express to his mother um, very, very clearly how he feels and why he feels so betrayed and disgusted by this and why it may be um, upsetting on a lot of different fronts. And I think that depending on how that conversation goes, he could say, look, I'm not sure if it'll help. I can't tell you that, but you need to apologize to my fiance and Mm -hmm. she will decide whether and when to accept that apology, Mm. which would shift the power back toward the fiance where it belongs. She should be in the driver's seat, but at least gives a, a one path forward for this family to come back together after this terrible incident when, you know, a mother's very cruel but private thoughts you know, became not private at all. <laughs> it became uh, a matter of family gossip. Yeah, I like what you said about shifting the power back to the fiance, because I thought this letter, again, another close read, um, I thought it kind of revealed a lack of empathy for her. The letter writer was sort of centering himself as someone who wanted harmony between yes. um, his future wife and his mother and wanted his future child to be able to know his mother. Um, And so he was sort of focusing on the question, does the mom deserve to be cut off? You know, what's just here and how can I fix this? And I think a better way to think about it would be, how can I help my, my girlfriend heal from this? You know, how can I ask her what she needs to get over this? So maybe it's time, maybe it's space, maybe it's an explanation, maybe it's a deep apology, and maybe it's daily reassurance from him or other people in the family that all these things aren't true. Um, since, like I said, the comments are out there and can't be taken back, I would be looking to her to say, is there anything you can think of that would make you feel better? Not that would make you forgive my mom, but first let's get to make you feel better about yourself and about yourself in this relationship. That's really beautiful. And it actually goes toward another point I was going to raise, which is, you note here, um, the fiance or girlfriend, I think they're engaged. uh, So I'll just say fiance, the fiance asked for this guy to call his mom and put it on speakerphone, but not tell his mom that the fiance was there, which indicates that the fiance doesn't trust him to report back honestly what the mom says to him. And so I think that's a bit of a red flag here regarding their relationship. And it just goes toward what you were saying that clearly the letter writer needs to do a lot more to build up trust and confidence with his fiance. And one way to do it is to put her in the driver's seat to, you know, demand an apology from his mom, but also make it clear to his fiance that she doesn't have to accept it, that it's up to her how she moves forward. But also, as you said, to ask, how can I help? What can I do? And one of the goals there has to be to restore the trust and confidence in the relationship to the point that the fiance feels she can at least trust him to convey those kinds of conversations honestly. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could zoom out because I'm just interested in your thoughts on a broader issue that this letter raises. How do we feel about the fact that shit talking is a part of life? Um, I think what was said here, like, revealed really nasty things about the mom. But I also know that all of us say, like, petty, negative, unfair things about others to our closest confidants, in this case, a twin sister. Maybe it's our best friend or our spouse behind their backs. A thing I think about a lot is that it's absolutely true that people say bad things behind my back. Because it happens to everyone. And if you just sit with that thought, it's terrifying. It happens to every single person on earth. 
And it doesn't make you feel any better to know that, well, people talk about Beyonce, people talk about Michelle Obama, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It's just absolutely chilling to know that all of us talk about other people and all of us are talked about behind our backs. And I just don't know if there's any way we could like integrate that reality into the part of the resolution here. So I think you have to couple the observation you just made with the understanding that often when people say these negative things, they're really projecting their own insecurities. Mm, yes. And I think that, you know, the most troubling part of the mom's comments was that she said she didn't think the fiance is thin enough. Okay, right. that is hella toxic. That is really yes. bad on so many levels. And frankly, it makes me wonder, again, like, Does the mother have some body dysmorphia issues, have some eating issues, something that she herself is working through and is projecting onto her fiance, onto her son's relationship? And I'm not saying that's a reason to forgive her at all, but Mm -hmm. it might bring a little bit more empathy into the son's perception of all of this and possibly open up a conversation with his mom about why these were the things she was concerned about. I mean, why was it that she's going to decide that he can only date women who are skinny enough for his mom? Where is that coming from? And hopefully move this outside the realm of shit talk into a productive conversation. Mm. But I mean, to your original question, there's nothing you can do about the fact that people are going to talk shit about you all the time. Right. And eventually and you'll I, hear I, it by mistake, maybe. You will hear <laughs> it for sure i've learned that the hard way many times Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, i think you you have to just decide how thin a skin you want to grow but also be super open and empathetic to your partner's needs because they might not have as thin a skin they might be uh, especially triggered by something that you don't find particularly offensive you know it's not always uh sort of rational or, or easy or intuitive to guess what a family member might say about your partner that will really set them off to you it's nothing to them. It's a huge thing. So I think having that dialogue open with the baseline understanding that yes, shit talk happens, but also a heightened sensitivity toward the fact that shit talk hurts people in different ways. And you have every right to be hurt, even if you, you know somebody else might say that's something to just shrug off. I think that's such a good point that this reflects the mom's issues. Um, not to just be like, oh, I guess she's just jealous. or I guess she has. Her, she's not happy with herself. Hurt people hurt people. But I actually think when I'm, I keep putting myself in the girlfriend fiance shoes thinking, is there any way I could get over this? What could make me feel better? And the thing that opens that door just a tiny bit is for me to understand this mom has tons of issues with her body and she's someone who's really in pain and really does not like herself um, and has adopted this really sad worldview. Because just imagine your son finds love and he's happy about it. And you don't want him to be with that person who's really hard to find. Like, it's hard to find someone who is compatible with you and you want them and they want you and you both want to commit because of the number of pounds of fat on their body. It it doesn't make any sense, especially when it comes to someone she claims to love. Like, it literally doesn't matter. Um, So I think sort of painting the mom as someone who's deeply troubled would probably be like my way through this, at least as as the girlfriend or the fiance. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he doesn't have to oversell it. I don't want him to put on a whole pity show for the fiance Correct. just to restore relations. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think they can have a discussion about what would prompt his mom to do this. And maybe or maybe not, that will encourage the fiance on a path toward forgiveness. Maybe in a few months, maybe in a few years, that timeline is totally up to her. You're listening to Dear Prudence, 
And when we come back, more letters from you and hopefully some helpful advice. Stay tuned. Can't get enough Dear Prudence? Then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate network and unlimited reading on the Slate site, including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash Prudy Plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, that's slate.com forward slash Prudy Plus. Adultish is back. And this season, we're talking about standing up and learning how to take a stand for issues on the minds of young people, like book bans. The book banning side. They have an incredibly well-oiled machine. Filling in food deserts. We have three community colleges where we either provide food boxes or an actual operating farmer's market. And what's affecting young people's mental and emotional health. Pressures of school, friendships from romantic relationships, Pressures from family. New episodes of Adultish from YR Media drop every Thursday, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guest, Mark Joseph Stern, to answer your letters. Okay, Mark, here's our next question. This letter is titled, Far From This Tree. My wonderful partner, Sage, and I are both 29-year-old women. We've been together for four months now, and she's floating plans to introduce me to her family. It would be a big milestone. I'm Sage's first female partner, and her mother is historically homophobic. Mom has only recently started engaging in conversation about LGBTQ plus issues with her daughter after repeatedly forgetting the first few times Sage came out to her. The conversations are still decidedly sour, but... Acknowledgement is a step forward at this point. She does not yet know Sage and I are dating. Here's where it gets complicated. Sage's 19-year-old sister, Tess, is trans. Her mother refuses to recognize this, but Tess is currently stuck living with her parents. We've offered to take her in at subsidized rent, but we can't afford to house her for free. Mom can. The situation is not great. Dad plays the soft middle ground by using a feminized version of Tess's birth name— not her preferred name, but stays quiet in the face of mom's transphobic rants. Tess can't risk standing up and being kicked out. My question is what to do when I find myself faced with one of mom's tirades at a family event. Thanksgiving is looking particularly fraught. My instinct is to confront the bigotry as it happens and then leave the guilty party to yell at the air. But I wouldn't be leaving her to yell at the air, would I? I'd be leaving her wound up to yell at Tess. That doesn't seem right. In the past, Sage has handled these situations by leaving in the moment without confrontation and dealing with the angry fallout in the next phone call with her mom. Leaving Tess mid-diatribe that way doesn't feel great either. So what to do? Sit silently, follow Sage's lead, 
speak up and trust Tess to handle herself when we leave or stay and take the heat until mom throws us out herself. I want to believe we can get away without this happening, but it's less a situation of if and more of when. So I've said this a million times, there's nothing that makes me feel more helpless than a letter from or about a young person who is stuck at home with parents who are somewhere on the awful to abusive spectrum. Um, There just aren't a lot of great solutions and it's so sad. But without sort of solving the underlying problem here, I think I have one insight about just the division of responsibility, I guess. Um, Hmm. I think the letter writer is a little too involved for someone who's not actually in the family. If I were the letter writer, I would ask Sage what I should do. And I would hope that Sage would ask Tess because Tess is the one who's living there. Um, Tess is an adult and knows the family dynamics best. So if you want to be of service to her, I think the two of you um, with your partner being the one to like take the lead here as a member of the family should take instructions from Tess. Yeah, I I agree. I think that just immediately crashes into the question of, well, what exactly are Tess's options here? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you indicated, when a young person is stuck at home with their parents, their options, their freedom is dramatically curtailed. Mm -hmm. One of the issues I saw here is not just that Tess is still living at home, but that she's 19. So she's a legal adult. She's probably still on her parents' healthcare plan. And Mm -hmm. tragically, health care is one way that um, anti-trans parents can try to manipulate their trans children into denying their authentic identities. You know, um, healthcare is crucial for trans people to access something as basic as just gender-affirming talk therapy, uh, something more like cross-sex hormones, whatever is necessary to, to treat Tess's gender dysphoria. When the parents are providing the health insurance and the parents are in the house, probably with an eagle eye on her, they are gonna have de facto veto power. And so my read was, this is a bad situation for Tess that's probably only going to get worse. And yes, the letter writer absolutely needs to ask Sage for guidance. The letter writer needs to put Sage uh, in, in the driver's seat here. But it seems likely that the, the end goal should just be getting Tess out of that house, whether that means mm-hmm. getting her a job, getting her on her own health insurance, getting her into a university. It's unclear if she's in school or not. Moving her beyond where she is in life right now that could be a major help. And I don't know if Tess is struggling with depression. I I wouldn't be surprised if she is, given that she's stuck with these terrible parents. Um, A major life change like that can really help treating even major depressive disorder. There's a lot of data that shows that just changing major things about your life can help pull you out of that kind of thing. So there there may be a lot of benefits to just kind of setting aside the exact question of how you script out a future conversation, challenging your parents' bigotries, and really zeroing in on how you get tests set up as an adult who's living on her own as her proud, authentic trans self. I love that reframing of the question because it does feel kind of impossible to decide, well, what do I say and when and how aggressively do I say it? And then do I walk out and slam the door afterwards? Um, Either way, Tess is left in this really bad situation. So I think it's a really, really great idea to just redirect everyone's energy to getting her out of there, um, even if it means just staying on someone's couch for a while. 
Absolutely. Now, if we want to backtrack and be a little more directly responsive to this question about how you handle the blow up, I think this is the kind of thing that if Tess wants and if Sage wants, the three of them do need to script out in advance. If, they, if they're certain another blow up is going to happen and they're not going to be able to help Tess get out before then, it's something to script so that you're all on the same page, you're all working from the same playbook, and you can all present a kind of united front against your parents when they do this so that they see very clearly that their kids are on the same page, that their kid's partner is on the same page, and that they are outnumbered and they are not going to be able to convince these individuals that they are wrong, that their identities are inauthentic, that they should feel uh, ashamed of who they are. And that is uh, easy to express in top line sentences like this, harder to explain in paragraph form. So I think mm -hmm. sitting down and talking through exactly how that conversation would go could be a lot of help. Um, I liked how you said outnumbered, and that gave me another idea, which absolutely does not address the core issue at all. But invite some other people to these events. Um, I think we can underestimate the power of buffers at um, family holidays and family dinners where people can get weird. Invite like two or three more friends over, just have them show up. And I think your parents, these people's parents are less likely to um, act out in front of company. Yeah, for sure. And you don't have to tell your parents they're coming just on, right. the, on the morning of, oh, my friend's coming. She yeah. is a lesbian rollerblader with a mohawk. <laughs> you know, perfect. Can't I guess an undercut is more plausible. <laughs> okay, again, good luck. This is Dear Prudence. We need to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay tuned. Okay, this is our last question for today. Do you have anything left to give? I think I do. Okay, this letter is titled, At least send it in the Tupperware. My neighbor drops his dog poop over the fence between our yards. I have no evidence, but I am sure it's him. Throughout the day, two or three um, logs end up right by my fence that borders his yard. He has a dog of corresponding size large. He owns a St. Bernard, and naturally, the leftovers are also of abnormal size. We have never been on good terms following a few contentious exchanges when he first moved to the neighborhood. I brought over a batch of cookies to welcome him to the area, but when I rang the doorbell, no one answered. I simply left the Tupperware with a note welcoming him and explaining there was no need to return the Tupperware. As I neared the end of his driveway, I heard him shout out from his doorway, are these gluten-free? I responded that no, they were not, and sorry. He was frustrated by this and said, Oh, well, I can't eat these. Under normal circumstances, I would completely understand a dietary restriction and be happy to remake the cookies. But before I got the chance to offer, he quickly shut his door. A few weeks later, another woman on the cul-de-sac and I were setting up for an annual block party our neighborhood does. I reiterated the story about the cookies to her, perhaps coming off a little miffed that I had not even received my Tupperware back, and joked that maybe he was trying to collect a set by pressuring me to make him another batch of cookies. She laughed at this but looked uncomfortable. I didn't think too much of this as she is usually pretty quiet and socially a bit awkward. Later at the neighborhood event, I saw her and the new neighbor embrace. I asked one of our mutual friends about this and she explained that the two had grown up together and dated briefly in high school. My heart sank a little bit. A few days later, I started finding the poop by my fence. My question is, how do I broach this accusative subject with someone who is already somewhat hostile towards me? Do I get proof? Should I buy cameras? 
what is overkill in this situation? This letter is funny to me in part because whenever people ask me of my story of like how I got to become an advice columnist, I tell them that when I was offered the job and I was an opinion editor, I thought to myself, how will I ever go back to being a serious journalist if I spend all this time um, telling people how to deal with their neighbor's dog poop? And like, literally, this is <laughs> this is what we're handling today. Um, it is a topic that comes up pretty frequently. So I did pick this question, too, because I was skimming it and I knew that you were a pet owner. And I was like, OK, <laughs> it, has, it has a pet in it. And I just grabbed it out of the inbox and. I now realize there's absolutely nothing about owning Toro that would help you understand this behavior <laughs> at all. I whatsoever. do actually also have a dog. Okay. Um, so the dog I think can help me, but she's a very polite pooper. Uh, yeah. She tries to she tries to poop in in larger fields and spaces and not directly in front of people's homes. So I I can't empathize too much with this letter, but I do have a lot of thoughts about it. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? Just take take it away with your initial thoughts because I'm honestly a little lost. Just like right off the top, I want to say let's take away from this a lesson about gossiping to your neighbors about other mm. neighbors, right? Like you live what in what sounds to be like a suburb, some kind of division where you have a cul-de-sac, where you have standalone homes, you people are going to be interfacing with each other a great deal. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of neighborhoods can sometimes get a little more close-knit. Sometimes people just stay left to their own devices. But there's a real chance that, you know, these people know each other and that they might be hanging out with each other or that they might have a long-standing childhood connection that you didn't know about. So maybe let's just start with be really careful about which neighbors you're gossiping to about fellow neighbors, because that is very likely to bite you in the ass. And the only surprise here is that it happened so quickly and did not take a little bit longer. Such great advice. I mean, apply that to coworkers, friends, yep. anyone you may be texting or DMing on Twitter. Um, stuff will just get out. Um, I need to yes. learn that lesson myself, as I've mentioned. <laughs> so... I mean, I was going over and over this thinking, does she confront him? Does she call the police? Um, but I think my issue is that this isn't a story of like rude behavior by a neighbor that just needs to be addressed. I think this might be a story about a man who needs some help. Um, he sounds like he is not really coping with life well at this moment. So first we have like the strange interaction where like some social cues were missed and there was like some kind of like an inappropriate exchange. And then we have this extra super inappropriate conduct of putting poop over the fence. And yeah, I just wonder whether this is someone who needs some resources. And I say that saying that I know we do not live in a country where there's like a 1-800 number you call and like a lovely social worker shows up and asks if everything is okay. And if someone needs therapy or like medication or money or friends, I know that's not something you can just get. But I am starting to think about this man as someone who is who is not doing okay. Yeah. And for that reason, I would strongly counsel against calling the police because when you call the police mm -hmm. on a person with a mental illness, with tragic frequency, the police just shoot them before even trying to figure out what's going on. Right. So I would definitely not advise getting police involved. This is barely a crime in the first place. You know, what this mm -hmm. is, is antisocial behavior by mm -hmm. a guy who seems like a weirdo. And I think you've addressed one issue here, which is like, what should she do in the long run 
to help this man because helping him will address the root problem, presumably. But I do think she has a right to focus on the preliminary question first, which is like, how do I get the dog poop to stop coming into my yard? Mm -hmm. And I think if we zero in on that first, I think it's absolutely appropriate to do what she suggested, which is to just get a camera, get a ring cam, get a nest cam. You don't have to share any of the footage with the police ever. It is your private Mm -hmm. footage, but position it so that you've got a clear view of this guy dropping his dog dung in your yard. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like once you have that irrefutable evidence, I think there's a couple of different ways you can approach him depending on whether you think he's any kind of threat you could try to contact him through email but it might be worth just going to his front door showing him the video and and not being accusatory or cruel um, but saying hey I've, I've noticed that you're that you're doing this I it, it's creating a real nuisance for me and I would appreciate it if if you'd stop um, but are, are you okay otherwise is there anything hmm. you want to discuss is there anything going on maybe that could lead to him uh, opening the door inviting her in them having a great conversation conversation about some services that he can call. Maybe he slams the door in her face and she never talks to him again. But I do think that would be the generous and good spirited way to move forward from this. She also is totally within her rights to show him the video and just say, stop doing this, or I'm going to share this on the neighborhood listserv and everyone's going to hate you. I have one additional thought about her trip over to knock on his door. Bring gluten-free cookies. (laughs) Beautiful. I mean, you pissed them off. You brought the wrong cookies before, so you have to address your part in this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're not at fault for not realizing that he uh, couldn't consume gluten, but it's a very nice gesture to show him that you were listening, that you were mm-hmm. holding space for him, and that you're coming forward to hopefully restart, reset the relationship, and and get it on the right footing. And it's perfectly easy for him to come up with an excuse if he wants to save face. Oh, I didn't realize that was your yard. Oh, I didn't realize where it was falling. Whatever. And I think if mm-hmm. he does that, she should accept it. Uh, and, and see if it really does end in, in him no longer doing this. Because if that happens, it's the best case scenario. They're on good terms. He's ashamed and realized he did something wrong. He stopped doing it. And everybody gets cookies. I'm so glad that you had that idea. Because do you know what I had written down in my notes before I just Tell gave me. up? Throw the poop back over the fence. <laughs> <laughs> I like what you came up with more. Uh, that is also within her rights. Um, but I, <laughs> but I you got to touch the, the poop to do that. It's like huge and heavy from the sounds of it. Yes. And also yeah. like, what if he turns around and accuses you of doing it and say, I didn't do right. anything. And she started shoveling all this poop. And then he calls the cops and the cops are saying, ma'am, we've got this footage from a neighbor showing you shoveling poop <laughs> onto his lawn. Like you don't want that situation. You want to stay in the right here. You do not want right. to risk getting into trouble. Good luck. Okay, those are all the questions we have for this week. Um, As always, I really hope we've been helpful. Mark, we covered everything from people dealing with homophobic in-laws to dog poop, and you handled it all so well. Thank you. You are too kind, a dream come true, and honestly, just such a pleasure to be here with the true prudence. Stay up to date on all things law, politics, and policy with Mark at Slate.com. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, and people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. That's slate.com forward slash P-R-U-D-I-E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday. And you can join us for the Dear Prudence live chat on Mondays at noon Eastern. 
If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast, we are looking for letter writers who would be comfortable recording their questions for the show. You can stay anonymous. Dear Prudence is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks. Editorial help from Paola de Verona. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. I'm your dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time.